On the blower, all the way from the UK, I have legendary harp man from Nine Below Zero, Mark Feltham. Welcome back to 3MDR and for the first time, harmonica riffraff, Mark. Good evening. I think it's evening there. I think you said you told me it was uh, 7 o'clock there, Phil. Good evening to you and your listeners. It's uh, 10 a.m. in the morning here. Just uh, kind of woken up at a late one. We've been travelling around Europe, so uh, I'm back for a couple of days rest before it all kicks off again on Sunday. And uh, I've just woken up to a lovely day here in central London. I'm just outside central London. Uh, good evening to you, Phil, and your listeners. And good morning back to you, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Now, I say back to 3MDR, as in June 2010, you appeared on Bealey's Roundabout. I did indeed, yeah. I, I can remember speaking, I think it might have even been the uh, of the anniversary of Rory's death. I'm not quite sure, but I remember speaking to him. Yeah. And I was very good friends of his family when uh, his, his brother was uh, alive, sadly passed on that. But uh, I, uh, I often speak to him and we know each other occasionally. Um, yes, we had a good chat about the uh, the time of, of Rory Gallagher and when I was with Rory. Yeah, uh, lovely memories. Yeah. All right, Mark. Well, because we're harmonica riffraff and you're a damn good harmonica player, that's what we're going to basically be talking about. But let's go back to the beginning when you first uh, started playing the instrument that fits in your pocket. Okay, so it's an odd one, really, Phil. It's a really odd one, this. I'll tell you what it is, mate. My grandfather on my mother's side was working, working as an engineer in, uh, in, in Iraq, believe it or not. It's a right weird one, then, mm-hmm. so uh, I've with me. <laughs> and uh, he was a professional engineer, uh, roads and bridges and construction of and pipelines and things of that sort. Now, I'm going back now to uh, 1920s, 1930s. And, of course, in those days, uh, there was no air transport. And he uh, he lived in a little place about 40 miles east of London uh, called Southend-on-Sea. And uh, in those days, you used to commute from the Thames, River Thames estuary, the Thames is the river that runs through central London. And you used to go on um, on the uh, ships, uh, merchant seamen ships, mm-hmm. down uh, to the Far East, Middle East, and across to Oz. And all that was done from central London before the advent of air travel. And those that were obviously travelling by air in those days were were wealthy people anyway, not for the general workers. So he used to go down on the merchant ships and do his work down there on, on the pipelines and such like. And, uh, of course, it was a fairly long crossing in those days, and a lot of the merchant seamen used to take harmonicas with them. And when he come back from work, and I was sent down to South End quite often, because my mum and dad had to work in Central London, we were very working class family, and I was sent to my nan and granddad. Granddad would come in with these uh, harmonicas, these tremolo tune things, uh, and chromatics, actually, that uh, he, he picked up on the trip down to Iraq. <laughs> and um, he'd given them to me at, at, at the age of six. So that's when I, that's my first introduction to the harmonica, at the age of six. Yeah. And that's how it started, Phil. It quite simply is an odd one, but that's how it started. Yeah, that's great. A great story. And you came back to it. Was there a Nashville connection or something that I was reading? A lot of my... Uh, when I picked it up seriously at the age of about 12 to 15, 
I desperately wanted to uh, to play country music. Really, I mean, country music's my big thing. I have a ma- I'm a massive fan of, of country musicians. I love country players, and I wouldn't really class myself as a blues player. However, um, in London at that time during the punk era, it was pretty difficult to find. As a growing lad uh, in London, it was pretty difficult to find. Uh, a country band that would do the circuit. And the ones that did do the circuit all had regular day jobs. And I, by this time, I'd left uh, I'd left my day job uh, working for the telecoms company to concentrate full-time on trying to get a career out, out of this. And it was difficult. So I, I, uh, I, found, uh, I found out through a BBC programme, a big thing for a BBC programme called uh, Stone Fox Chase, that uh, was played by uh, Charlie McCoy, and it was a bunch of Nashville session musicians uh, in Cinderella Studios out in Nashville, and I just had to find more about this guy out because I loved what he did, and they used subsequently used it on a big TV show called The Old Grey Whistle Test here that uh, showcased new rock and blues talent all from all over the world, and it was a pioneer program. And uh, But the theme tune they used was this harmonica thing, and I thought, I've got to find this, this is great, and it was country but with a blues tinge. It was actually written by Kenny Buttery and uh, Charlie McCoy. Kenny Buttery you know, was Neil Young's drummer, you know. Yeah. Um, so I I, uh, I I came in through the Nashville thing and I, I, I ordered all of McCoy's stuff from in those days we had no internet, obviously so I had to order it for, for an import shop in Aberdeen as I remember, in Scotland. So it's a long winded old process of waiting <laughs> six weeks Get your records to come over. These were all vinyl, of course, in them days. No computers, no CDs, nothing. So yeah. everything came in on vinyl from the state fire Aberdeen. <laughs> and uh, the whole of my studying and learning was through, really, through McCoy and Charlie McCoy and the country stuff. And I just loved the way that he played and his attention to details and what he could do with a single note that uh, many, many tried to do, you know, and got nowhere near. Uh, so all my early learning was through straight melody and country music. Interesting. I've got a friend here, Steve Williams, who uh, was a saxophone player, harmonica player for the John Farnham band, who you may have heard of. Yes. And yeah. uh, Charlie McCoy got him in as well, and it was a song, and, and we actually did a workshop on it on air, and yeah. the song was Back to Indiana. And yes. he, we talked about all the bands on Hole 3, and hole two, and how you had to hit each one, and That's and correct. it was just amazing, just amazing to hear him play that, and and I hadn't heard it before, and to just have that control. Well, he did it. He did it with such uh, so tastefully as well, and every note that he hit was absolutely spot on. Mm. Now I've always to, to kids learning. I, I was down at a teaching yesterday that it's the most difficult instrument in the world to play well, but the easiest to play very badly. Because yes. <laughs> the kids can pick it up and puff and blow. Yeah. But when you listen to someone McCoy, just playing a straight melody, something like Amazing Grace, holding those bands, he's got, for me, he was my man of that time. I mean, since then, there's been other great players come into my life when I discovered the blues. And uh, other other players began to come into my listening, but I, I I have to be honest and say to you that all my early, early learning was was through country country music and playing straight melodies. Can I? 
I'm going to jump ahead sort of on the plan I had here, but did you find that the fact that you learnt the country style of playing helped you as a session musician with all the work you did and sort of playing in a pop setting as well? Absolutely. You're absolutely spot on, Phil. Absolutely spot on. Because I don't think I would have got away with the stuff that I subsequently done over the years by being, by being a blues player. Yes, I would have never have gotten away with it. And to be honest, I've seen some fine blues players in London and you say to them, OK, play, play me Amazing Grace, play me a melody, play me a country, and they haven't got a clue. Mm. don't know where to... I've seen all these great tongue blockers, I've seen all these great overblowers, can't play a straight melody with straight bends in it and can't do it. So it is, it is something that is, uh, was in me when I, when I, when I started. And I, I thank the country. I mean, I had to do um, orchestral bits in London with the London Philharmonic and, and things like that, where if I hadn't have had the country training, I would have never have got away with it, never. It was only through meeting the guitarist that I'm with now that I've been with 37, 38 years. It was only through him and saying, come on, I can't play this country music stuff uh, if we're going to try and get a record deal with the band that I'm with now, Nine Below Zero. I'm going back to 78, 79 now. Yep. I said, you know, you're, you're, what else have you got in your repertoire? And of course, at that time, I had John Lee, Funny Boy Williamson, the first who was my, uh, who was my mentor, and Snooky Pryor and and, and um, uh, Sonny Terry uh, were, were, were people that I'd got into at that time. And it was Dennis, uh, my, my guitarist, was very much punk mod blues and aggressive, and I'm saying, well, old back up. And to this day, we're like this. I'm pulling him back and saying, listen to this, listen to this, you know, calm down, calm down. It's not Crash Band, well, you know, give it, give it some time, listen. So that's how... I eventually ended up getting a living out of what I'm doing by being with a band that uh, was signed up. Uh, call it, call it, punk, punk blues, if you will, Phil. Yeah. Um, which we were at the time, but I had had all that country training with me, so I was able to uh, to to put a different slant on uh, 1970s London harmonica playing. And you know, there weren't many of us around. There's a, there's a few more around now, but none that. I can think that uh, that has that country's background because it's just not hip here, not hip at all.
Nine Below Zero. You started out as Stan's Blues Band, is that correct? We did. We started out as Stan's Blues Band because Dennis was a fan of Stan Webb. Right. Stan Webb's Chicken Shack. Mm-hmm. Dennis was very much into the English R&B. He liked Wilco Johnson very much. He was a huge fan of Wilco, huge fan of John Mayle and uh, the Blues Breakers, Peter Green, you know, I mean, who's yeah. not a fan of Greeny? He was master, master, master. Yeah. Um, well, everything they did, everything they did, but that's another story. But uh, Dennis come up from that British thing, and I come up from the American thing. So um, he, he had that, uh, that edge to him, and he still loves all that British R&B now. John, a huge John Mayer fan. Whereas I'd be a John Mayer fan, you know. <laughs> <laughs> interesting because you became famous or should I say infamous for your role on the first episode of The Young Ones when you played 11 plus 11 which I would say that was sort of a new wave punk sort of style tune yet you'd you'd sort of done blue standards before that so absolutely well what happened was that we was under pressure from the record company to write fresh material and we'd gone from we'd gone from John Mayle uh, you know Peter Green Savoy Brown stuff all of a sudden to write in our own stuff and because Dennis had that punk street street type of uh, music in him in being a North London boy, I was a South London boy. That's another story <laughs> for North, North of the teams, South of the teams, Jill and Cheese again. <laughs> he had that, that aggression, that, you know, that neck, the veins in the neck coming out <laughs> where I was much more laid back. And um, he, he, the, that, the, the, the third album, Third Degree, was completely self-penned a lot of the, the second album was as well. And uh, we, we we got a call uh, via the, the people at A&M Records that we were signed to to say, look, there's a pilot show. We think it might be good for you to do. It's, uh, it's starring you know, Aid Edmondson and, and, and Rick Mayo and that. Yep. But it's only a pilot show. Nothing will ever come of it. <laughs> so we goes off there and does the pilot show. And, of course, the rest is history. And, and it amazes me how many people I say, saw you on the young one, saw you on the young one. And I get embarrassed every time I see that, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. So I just tell them I'm the other, it's the, it's the old ones now. You're just, you're just there playing in the, in the lounge room. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I just, it's just bizarre how, it, how it all, that all come about. As I say, it was only a pilot show. And as far as we knew, it was going to be just stuck in the archive and never used. In 1982, after five years with Nine Below Zero, you left to do yeah. session work, and then you spent over 10 years with the great Irish guitarist Rory Gallagher. I'd like to know yeah. how, how you hooked up with him, how that came about. Well, so- I, well I'll, t- I'll, t- 
uh, hooked up with him. We had a very, very kind of famous pub that was just under the radar of being an auditorium. It was not much money to get in in those days, and it was a great showcase for young bands, and the pub was called The Bridge House. Okay. And it was in dead in the centre of London, just to the east of London, in the old east end of London. It's now been all redeveloped. I couldn't... I went over there the other day to uh, drive over there, and I couldn't tell you where the old pub was. It's just so vastly been all knocked down, and they took the money over there in our apartments, and you know, you know the story, I'm sure that's the yeah. same in same all your big cities, but... It was it was a fabulous place for and a lot of bands come out of there. Depeche Mode, all they all started their careers there. You know, not necessarily blues bands, but everything across the board. A great governor in there, a guy called Terry Murphy, that was to, was a boxing champion at the times of the craze, and he had a fantastic history of the place. You know, anyway, a long story short, I made uh, good friends by going over there and looking, seeing the jams with uh, Jerry McAvoy and Brendan O'Neill. That was Rory's rhythm section at the time, and I used to stand in and get up and jam with him. And Jerry said, "Jerry had a band at the time, and uh, he used to say, come on, why don't you get up with us? Get up with us. How's the band going?'" I said, "Well, unfortunately, we've folded now, and we've uh, we've done more or less five years with with A and Records, and we'd all got in each other's nerves, and it kind of imploded, you know." So I was a I was a free hand. So I was started picking up bits of session work, TV, film, jingles mostly, and I'd go up to London every day on the train, do two or three radio jingles into central London, come back. It was only 19 minutes on the train, so I could have. At one time, I was doing four, five, six sessions a day in central London, and being London, I don't know if you know it here, Phil, but, but uh, you could walk with a bag of harmonicas in between the studios. So one day I'd do Dodge trucks, the next day I'd do Chevrolet, and it was it was good. It mm. was good. This is before kids had the technology to make records of their own indoors on the computer. We had studios, and they were all working studios. Coffee was going around, biscuits. It was all busy, buzzing, buzzing. Sadly, now that's all gone. But I spoke to uh, Jerry and Brady. So Jerry uh, said, come up and jam with come up and jam with us. You know, so I got up with uh, the Jerry McAvoy jam. Brendan O'Neill was the drummer, either him or Ted McKenna, who was subsequently with Alex Harvey. I used to jam with them. And they used to come over on a Friday, come and have a jam, come and don't be stuck in the studio. Anyway, one particular day, Jerry rang me and he said, um, we're having a jam with Rory up at Nomis in London. Nomis was uh, signed to maybe Bell Studios in Central West London. Come up, come up and uh, come up and have a jam. Rory, Rory wants to meet you, you know. So anyway, I goes up there, meet Rory, who was an absolute angel, absolute angel of a man. Mm. And I said on, on many interviews, angel of a human being. Uh, made me feel very, very easy. And, uh, he said, come, come and have a jam. And, of course, I wasn't used to playing at that volume level. So. <laughs> <laughs> I could no longer get away with just a little 15 or 20 watt amp, you know. <laughs> I had to step up to a Fender Twin Reverb so, because he was fiercely loud. And for a free piece, they made one hell of a racket, you know. And it was aggressive rock blues that I wasn't used to, but... In saying that, Rory had a beautiful touch with him. He could play country fantastic. He had everything. He's a very gifted musician, acoustically as well, mm. and a gifted man, a gifted human being. So he said to me, listen, I've got a show out at, uh, I'll never forget it, Pistoia. 
Edinburgh Blues Festival, which in Europe is one of the biggest. It's like your Byron Bay, I think, Phil. It's a massive festival just outside Pisa, I think, in, in Italy. And we were opening for uh, Jimmy Page and Ginger Baker, and I, I, I had the misfortune of sitting on Ginger Baker's drum cut. <laughs> and he, he went absolutely mad with me and really got nasty with me, you know. He could be a bit prickly at the best of times. Jimmy was fine. Jimmy Page was laughing about it, but Ginger Baker was a bit prickly, to say the least. And I, I may not forget that, you know, get, get, get off my gear. This is my gear. So... It was a nervous initiation for me. And then I made the mistake, of course, of walking for, too far forward on my first solo with Rory in, in, in this big Pistoia Blues Festival, 15,000 people there. He gave me a, a solo on I wonder who and then walked too far forward. And then Jerry just told me afterwards, you know, make sure you watch, keep watching Rory's shoulders. Never cross the barrier too far forward. Keep your eyes at all times on Rory's back. So that was my initiation, because in 900, we were all the same. We could all move forward, take solos, come back, and, you know, give to the public, the public could come and see you. But with Rory, it was very much Rory and his band, very carefully worded. You know, it wasn't the Rory Gallagher band, it was Rory Gallagher and his band. And we were very much made aware of that. It was a kind of thing you didn't talk about, but the respect he had. And after that first time, we were, uh, where Jerry said to me, keep your eyes on his back, you know. Because possibly down to uh, Rory's crisis of confidence as well, you know. And, I, and it was a great lesson, stagecraft lesson that I learned to always, you know, bide your time, keep, keep back. The boss is the boss, so crowded space. And uh, less is more. And that's how it's always been. So, oh, I did that festival with Rory, and Rory said, uh, you know, can you do some more? Would you like to do some more food? And I did, I did that summer, and then I did the next 11 summers. Until he died, unfortunately. So I was with him for 11 years. And they were 11 wonderful years with uh, probably the most wonderful man in rock music that I've, I've ever met. I doubt I'll meet anyone as nice as him again anyway. He's an absolute darling, lovely man. Yeah, that's fantastic. You recorded on a couple of albums that I know of anyway, the Defender in 87 and Fresh Evidence in 1990. And I do love Ghost yeah. Blues. It's oh, Ghost Blues. You know, I can remember being—I can remember being in the studio that night, and um, I think it was recorded down in West London somewhere. They'd all been in the pub, and Rory had this idea of kicking around. They'd all been in the pub. I come down late because I was often called. I'd get a call from his office and say, "Look, can you be in West London in ten minutes?" You know, and I'm like an hour away. <laughs> oh, oh, okay, up I dash. You know, because Rory was famous for this, even even turning up at Heathrow Airport to go abroad. You'd still be waiting there with like 35, 40 minutes left for the flight, and we still had to clear customs. It was always the same <laughs> nightmare because he couldn't make his mind up. <laughs> so, this was one of the occasions with Ghost Blues where he couldn't make his mind up about how the track was running and how it was going. So, he'd had a drink and uh, he'd got the office to call me. He'd had a drink in the afternoon after rehearsals, running the recording studios. Said, can you get down here and play a bit of harmonica? And when I got in, I can remember there was a few candles lit in the state, in, in the, there was beers everywhere because Rory was fond of, unfortunately, of, of, the, of the liquor. But uh, there was some vibe about that track. It was a fantastic vibe. And that, that was one of his great, great tracks. That I mean, people, people know him for all the earlier stuff, but there's some gems on that later stuff and all. And that, 
that quite rightly Phil was was one that was one of his gems I feel anyway. Yeah. He like he died way too young. You were at at his bedside, and was it his brother that asked you to play the harmonica because it might help bring him around? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it was a very sad time. He he went into I think Cromwell Hospital in London to have a liver transplant. And as you know, when you lose a major organ like that, uh, it's the side effects of everything else. Your immune system is depleted, and he was tired of touring, tired of working, his immune system was low after the major organ transplant and subsequently got an infection. Mm-hmm. So he dipped into a coma. By this time he was transferred to King's College Hospital in London. At once it was on the south side, my side of London. Donald, the manager, and Tommy's faithful uh, road manager that had been with him ever since, and still in the office to this very day, were called in uh, to sit around him and to talk to him, to try and talk to him, although he was in a kind of coma. So Donald said to me, why don't you go up there and take the harmonica up and just sit there and play? And of course, I, I would have done anything for him. I loved him. I loved him. Adored him. I adored him. I was ever so upset when he died. But to cut a long story short, I took some harmonicas up and I went in on my own. And he was sitting there and he, he, he to, to, they put I never forget it because they put little um, things over his eyes to stop his eyes getting very uh, dry because his eyes were open. Mm. And he's kind of looking at me and I was playing for him. But although there was nothing, the lights were on, but there was no one in. No one home. And, you know, and I, I played some country stuff, some blue stuff. I played some Dylan. He was a huge, huge, huge Bob Dylan fan. Huge Bob and Martin Carthy and people like that. People that you wouldn't think were his influences from come Irish show bands and people like that. He loved them. George Jones, huge George Jones fan. So I, I played country music because I know that, that he loved that country blues stuff. And I played it, and then Donald would call me and say, How'd you get on? I said, Well, I thought I saw a flicker from him, you know, but I don't know, I don't know. And then uh, I tried that for two or three days, come home, and then Donald said, Listen, let me just get up here fairly quickly.
you've done session harp for names such as Roger Daltrey, Paul Young, Manfred Mann's Earth Band, Joan Armour Trading, yeah. New Model Army, Roachford, Annie Lennox, Joe Cocker, Oasis, and that's just to name a few. There are two in particular that I want to talk about. One is Box of Frogs, back where I started, because I remember it was early in my teaching career and one of the other phys ed teachers said, you really like this album. And it was that first album, and I particularly liked yeah. that track. That was Yardbirds as well, members of the Yardbirds. So how did that come about? Well, that, the Yardbirds thing came about uh, when I got a call from Jim McCarthy, the drummer of the Yardbirds, and said, uh, listen, I'd like you to come down. We're getting Rory down to play on the track. We're getting Jeff Beck down to play on the track. Down in Surrey, one of the you know, counties south of London. Come down and... Uh, We've got a couple of tracks here. John, John Fiddler's written a couple of uh, tracks. He was the con vocalist that ended up being the vocalist for the band. Paul Samuel Smith producing. So I goes down there and uh, I does, uh, they pull this one track up. I play on this track. I think Rory's playing a bit of slide on there. Jeff Beck's playing lead on it. I mm. met Beck for the first time. And yep. the only time. I haven't never met him since. And he only lives 10 miles down the road from me. Mm. Uh, uh, met, met Jeff Beck playing on that one, and uh, which was lovely. Rory was in there. We were all in there doing that uh, stuff. Finished that track. I left, thought no more of it, and then I get a call from Paul Samuel Smith and said, we're doing a Marquee reunion. Could you be, could you front the Yardbirds for us? And I said, yeah. I barely do backing vocals as it is without taking over lead vocals. Anyway, I thought, well... <laughs> Think or swim, you either learn the set and do it, or you don't do it. So, I uh, we did the marquee, I learned all the songs, kind of fronting it. Although I'm not a front man, I don't profess to be a front man, I'm just an harmonica player that does BBs. I love singing, but I'm not a front man, that's it, I'm art in itself. But I had to do it there, so we did that, took it over to Spain, uh, did a couple of shows over there, and uh, as quickly as it got on its feet, it was gone again. And, uh, that was it. That, so that one was gone. Hmm. And um, but I stayed friends with Jim, and uh, he subsequently, in, in later years, asked me if I was available to do some more yardbird shows. But by that time, I'd got back with Nine Below Zero again, uh, who had a second career uh, just uh, just bubbling. And uh, I, I went I, I went back with Nine Below Zero, and I couldn't do it. So some someone else replaced me. Actually, Alan Glenn, I think, went in there, and then Billy Boy and Nick Skimmon went in there. So they've had a succession of frontmen. Uh, or singers since I did it and uh, I've never worked with them since But you did Box of Frogs in 1984 Well you'd know the dates better than, <laughs> better than I Yeah I, I just I just I, I remember it being a, a great track I love that yeah, track it's a ripper uh, It's got a nice vibe and very very yardbirdy at the front of it and I, I, I had a lot of time for uh, John Fiddler as well I like John Fiddler's ideas and um, I, it was a nice big production on that as well as I remember Yep. Uh, done in a very expensive studio, as I remember as well. But my memory's not too great, Phil, so I, I don't pin me down on, on right. what type of time it was <laughs> or when it was or what I used. All I right. can't remember. I'm going to give you another one here. And I quite like this band because this is a bit perhaps left field. Deacon Blue, a Scottish band. And yeah. in 1989, they had an album out called When the World Knows Your Name. And they had a really big single, Real Gone Kid, which uh, did really well out here. And the fourth single was Love and Regret. And I think yeah. it got to number 28 on the charts. Yeah. And so you played a bit of harp on that. I 
played a bit of harp on Deacon Blue. I was a massive fan of Ricky Ross. I think he was a real, real talent, real talent. And they had their time, and as, as big as they were here, they disappeared as quickly as they came up. I also did a couple of uh, Hammersmith Odeon shows with them in London. They asked me to guess. <laughs> I can remember being backstage and Ricky Ross said to me, listen, I want you to come out. He said, what do you know about Fred Astaire's dancing? So I said, excuse me? <laughs> so he said, well, I'd like you to come out on stage, do a few steps like this. And he was trying to introduce choreograph in a dance routine to me. And I said, Ricky, you've got the wrong guy here. I'm just a dancer as well. So... I did those two shows. I come home and I remember saying to my wife at the time, I don't think I'll do any more than they want me to dance as well. <laughs> which, was, which was okay, but, you know, I, 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 that was it. So as quickly as that came into my life, Deacon Blue, that that disappeared as well. But I've a lot of time for Deacon Blue, a lot of time for him. All right, mate, let's get back with uh, you and Dennis and Nine Below Zero. So you're back together again. You've been back together for a while. Now, 17 years I've been back. And you performed um, at Glastonbury this year? Yeah, we did Glastonbury this year. Yep, we did Glastonbury, and I think we just finished the. I just. I'm actually looking at the cover of the album now. I took uh, delivery of the new record two days ago, and it's sitting here on my coffee table. I'm looking at it now. No one's heard it yet because it's not gone out to the punters yet. Um, it's going to be available from the 1st of September. I've got a copy here, and I'm going to win that out to your people out there. Excellent. Now, hang um, on, mate. Hang on, mate. I'm just trying to visualise from here. I've got an idea that it could be called... It's got blue in it. It's got... the no, You like numbers, so it's got 13 in it. 13 Shades of Blue. 13 Shades of Blue, yeah. Well, it's taken a year to make, and I'll tell you what happened. We, uh, we had some interest from one of the... Uh, archive guys up at Universal Music and he said, why don't you try and get yourself a selection of great, great tunes? If at all possible, we'll, we'll research them. And this guy is a magnificent researcher. I mean, what he doesn't know about old music is just... So he said, I'll tell you what, he said, I'll, I'll present you with a batch of 30 or 40 songs of great songs that I thought were great songs, but for one reason or another, just slipped underneath the radar. Why don't you go and re-record them? Because no one will know them anyway. I said, uh, I said, Dennis, what do you think about this idea? He said, well, let's, let's, let's do a bunch of 25 and whittle them down to, say, 13 or 14. So we went out and we, uh, we got this batch of songs. We, we made our mind up what we were going to record. And we've always wanted to put a big band on record, so we uh, employed uh, a brass section. Mm. They're the section that's on the album. We've got, uh, it's a nine-piece on the album. Uh, which we've now got to take out to enable to play the new stuff live for the for the tour around Europe. We've also got to take the nine players out with us. We're, uh, but but the, the problem started kicking in when we started recording because I didn't think the the, the sound was absolutely right in Glenn's studio, uh, Glenn Tilbrook from Squeeze. It's Squeeze's oh, yeah. studio that we. Yeah, yeah. Ben's a very good friend of ours and a great mentor as well. He's a lovely guy. So he said, well, use my studio and you can make the album. So it was convenient for us because it's very close to us all. Now, that may or may not have been a good decision. We, we recorded some come away. Dennis said, what do you think about this one? We went, oh, I don't know. I think we could do with a bit more bottom end on that. Let's remix this one. And, of course, it, 
got into that Manfred Mann syndrome where you end up doing 100 mixes of the same song. And in the end, we just said, right, this is, we're disappearing up on our own backside here. Let's look at it all again, stripped it down, took it back to basics, recorded it in analogue, and it sounds fantastic. Um, we've got a, a brand new record, and uh, I think it's our, about our 19th album that yeah. we've done. There's lots of, lots of stuff out there. And it's in my hand, and it's coming out at the end of the month. But I should get you a, a copy over. That'd be excellent. So it's a few songs that never really was that very popular in the first place, because they might have been B-sides, they might have been extra tracks, but ones that we've uh, given a little bit of new life to. And that's, that's the story of 13 Shades of Blue Pill. Covered the toddle on it uh, by Little Walter. Oh, which right. I've always wanted to record. It was one of Little Walter's instrumentals. There's a good atmosphere, and I think we've done a credible job on it. I've always said to Dennis, listen to this. This is one of his lesser-known ones, the toddle. So um, I played that. Uh, I used to play the champ all the way through that album uh, with two microphones for anyone technically wanting to know how we did it. And I had a mic on the back of the speaker and a mic on the front of the speaker. Uh, but it was a Fender Champ, and I used the Shaw 545 SC into the Champ for those that technically. Yeah, and, and there's listeners out very there that appreciate simple. that. Yeah. Very simple. We might wind up here, Mark, from 3MDR and Harmonica Riff Raff. Thanks for your time today and your fabulous heart playing over the years. Well, thank you very much for uh, for listening. And thank you very much, uh, for, for allowing me into uh, into your world out there. It's a world that I'd, lo- I'd love to come over and play. I have great mem- memories about being over there with Rory. We did a flash, it was all gone, five shows, and I never came back. And as quickly as it happened, we were back, we were over to Los Angeles, starting the American, North American tour. And I've never been back since. I remember, I remember drinking in the bar of the Seabull Townhouse in Sydney and thinking, this is it, I've arrived, you know. <laughs> and as soon as it, as it was there, it was taken away again. And I've never been back, but I'd love to come back. Would love to come back. So thank you for listening to my humble story, Phil. Thank you. Aha. Uh-huh. Aha. Uh-huh.